you're giving people something to mirror, which they're going to do. And that opens the door for people to talk to you about what's working. Sure. But also what's not working, which is what you need to hear even more, I think, as a leader, right? Hey, it's David. And you're listening to Leadership Without Losing Your Soul, your source for practical leadership inspiration, tools, and strategies you can use to achieve transformational results without sacrificing your humanity or your mind in the process. Hey, welcome to the show. I am excited today because, listen, you have something awesome inside of you. And our guest today is in the business of bringing that out so it can live in the world and make a real difference for you, for your team, for your customers, for your colleagues. And uh, his name is John Bates, and he's world famous at some level. And the level of training that he provides in communication, he's worked with executives from organizations like uh, Johnson & Johnson, NASA, including the astronauts. I don't know that I've ever talked with somebody who has trained astronauts before. So John, this is going to be a first. Uh, U.S. Navy Special Ops, people recommend him to their colleagues. These folks that we just mentioned, they recommend him to their colleagues as the best leadership communication trainer working today. So that's high praise. And I am excited to be able to have John share some of his wisdom with you today. He's also the author of a book we'll talk about. It's called Your Amazing Itty Bitty Guide to Being Ted Worthy, 15 Essential Secrets of Successful Speaking Based in Human Neurobiology. John, welcome to Leadership Without Losing Your Soul. Thank you, David. Thank you. I, 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 you had me at the title, <laughs> you know, leadership without losing your soul. I'm in. All right. Well, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that, but before we do, I want to ask you uh, a question and you can go back wherever you need to take us. But the question is this, can you tell us about your earliest memory of yourself as a leader? Wow. You know, <laughs> I haven't been asked that question maybe ever. My earliest memory of that was Growing up in, you know, I grew up in Salt Lake City, Utah, and I was one of the, you know, I was an only child till I was five. And then my, my sister came along. So I had an infant baby sister and every other family on my block had like seven kids. And I remember my, my mom and my dad telling me that, you know, I was a leader, you know, they could tell that I was right. And so like, I think I just, said, okay, <laughs> you know, you know, I think that it, part of the reason that I maybe came across like that to them was because I had grown up an only child. My dad was in the Marine Corps. We traveled all over. Like I, I would go everywhere with them. So I was kind of used to conversing and hanging out with adults. And that also made it a little difficult hanging out with kids too. Like I wasn't very good at that for a long time. I kind of had a, I thought something was wrong with me or something, you know, but uh, that's my earliest memory. Um, and, and, you know, the other thing that I will say is I grew up Mormon. Uh, I gave it up for Lent. Um, that's a joke for people who are Catholic. I, I grew Mormon, up Mormon. Maybe. And I, one of the things that I think is really great about the Mormon religion is that they give people these roles, you know? So like all through my teenage years, I always had some sort of a leadership role in like Eagle Scouts and in the, the, you know, at at primary school or whatever. And so that was also really interesting. And I think it's a, a, it's a great thing, you know, whatever the organization is, I think that's a great thing to just do from the beginning is, 
give kids an opportunity to be on the hook for something. You know, there's a, a commonality in everything that you're describing that I'm hearing picking up is you were told you were a leader. You were told you had influence by your parents, by your yeah. church, by the community, like all the organizations you were a part of, scouts, right? So yeah. you, had, you had people in your life telling you, listen, John, you have influence. Yeah. Let's figure out how you're going to use it. David, that is so meaningful to me. And it's the first time that I've heard that angle on it ever and really gotten it like this, because here's one of my fundamental sayings and things that I work with the leaders that I coach ongoingly. And it's one of my most favorite tenets of leadership is to speak to them like they're great, no matter how they're acting in the moment and always talk to people like they are capable and able, right? Like even if they're getting bad results, like, you know, you're so brilliant. What's up with your results? These are terrible results, but you're brilliant, you know? And if you keep speaking to people like they're great long enough, they'll step into it and they'll never forget that you saw it before they did. And I didn't, ever think about the fact, it's going to make me cry, that my folks did that for me and the people in my church did that for me. And I just believed them. Yeah. That's so beautiful. <laughs> That's so hilarious and awesome. <laughs> it is awesome. I think it's something that leaders do uh, that, you know, so you had leaders in your life that were calling out the greatness in you, the influence in you. And you just said, listen, we can do that for other people too. And it's funny, you're definitely a kindred spirit for me in that regard. I remember back when I was 11, 12 years old, I was telling people, uh, other leaders that I was associated with in, at that age group, telling them, people will rise to the level of expectation you have of them. Brilliant. So true. That's exactly perfect. Awesome. I'd like to say I made that up. I didn't. I, I read that somewhere when I was 11 or 12 years old, but it resonated. It stuck and I grabbed, with you. Grabbed a hold of it and I shared it everywhere I could. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it's uh, responsibility is taken, right? And the reason we take it is because along with it comes great power and, and great ability to create the world in the way that we want it to be, you know, and that taking responsibility for the impact your expectations have, that's powerful. It is it, it, recognizing the influence those expectations have and being intentional with them. There's so Boom. much opportunity there. Yeah. So much opportunity to help, help develop your people, your teams and, and grow leaders yourself. So you mentioned the name of the show, Leadership Without Losing Your Soul. And, and that's what we're all about here is the getting the results that we need as leaders without sacrificing our humanity in the process. What does losing your soul, when you see leaders losing their soul, what does that mean to you? Why does that happen? Where does that, what, what, what resonated when you first heard that phrase? You know, it's something that I've been thinking about a lot because I just launched a signature group training program and I had to figure out what in the world I thought I was doing with that. Because, you know, what am I doing with that? And 
what kept coming up for me over and over as I thought back over the decade that I've spent supporting some of these really top leaders in the whole world. And what have I learned from all of that? And what do I, I see over and over again that, that I can bring that makes a real difference for people? And one of the things that kept coming up for me is integrated leadership, integrated. And what does that even mean? Well, you know, to integrate yourself fully enough that you can be who you actually are, no matter what the circumstance, no matter whether you're at home or at work or someone's watching or someone's not watching. And one of the most powerful things that I've ever heard personally about that is it's variously attributed that idea of your personality. You could think of it like a, like twigs. And if it's just a jumble in a pile, any of those twigs is easily broken. But when you take the time to align those aspects of your personality and get everything in congruence with everything else and get everything aligned and integrated, that becomes an unbreakable bundle of sticks. It'll flex and they'll back each other up and you become unbreakable in some sense. And that's what Gandhi did. And that's what I think, uh, I, I wish I could remember, but I, I also heard that saying attributed to uh, one of the great Native American leaders. And that when I first heard that, it really, really impacted me. And, you know, I had a period in my life where I woke up one day and realized I was not the guy I wanted to be, not even close. And there were areas in my life where I was not being the guy I wanted to be, you know? And I spent a long time digging into that, breaking that apart, figuring out what was underneath that, and then putting myself back together, you know? And that's some of the most influential, powerful, meaningful work I've ever done. And I would never, ever be able to do what I'm doing now if I hadn't done that. I also wouldn't have the wife I have now, who's awesome, and my son, like, you know, the, the, everything I love in my life became available to me because of that work. Hmm. So I think that getting clear on your values, your principles, aligning yourself in every area of your life, you know, I think leaders start to lose their souls when they think that they can be somebody different at work than they are at home. And when they think that, it, you know, it's okay to do something crummy in the moment for a brighter future, you know, it's always now like the end never justifies the means ever, ever, because if you're willing to do it now, then you just got gunk all over inside the car and the car is moving through time, but you're always in the car, you know, that was kind of a long way to go about that. No, it makes sense though. And that lack of alignment, uh, you know, the, the metaphor of the twigs all being lined up makes sense. And the, where you lose your soul, part of what I'm hearing is when you don't have that clarity for yourself, when you don't yes. have the alignment of your own internal values to your actions, so forth. And then, and then as, and where, the, where that comes out in real kind of real life, what people can see is when your actions aren't lining up with 
who you actually are. And so yeah. you got to do the work to figure that out, to know who you are, know what's actually important and yeah. then make sure you're living that. And you know, it only, I think in some ways it only gets harder as you move up in your leadership. The, the people that I'm supporting are at the very highest levels of leadership. And there is, there's always going to be, I guarantee you, a draw to do that thing that might be better in the short term or might be easier or might make more money right now. But one of the things that I just say over and over and that people thank me for years later for saying is play the long game as a leader. You know, my dad gave me some of the best advice I ever got in this realm. He said, when I was in high school, I don't know what was happening, but I'm so glad he said this. He said, son, you know, be good to the people you meet on the way up because they're the same people you're going to see on the way down. And then you'll see them on the way up again. And then, you know, it's a long song. Be kind to the people around you. And I, I really took that at face value and really tried to implement that in my life. And I think it's one of the things that has served me best of anything. I love it. I'm, I'm reaching for my, my tablet because on the back here, if I bring it up, so there you go. Work it's, hard and be nice to people. You know, and I, I, I remember sharing that advice. You know, it was the father uh, leadership aspect we're talking about here. But I remember sharing that advice with my daughter throughout the years when she was young. I said, listen, wherever you go, whatever you end up doing, I mean, how, how important is that advice? Be good to people. I mean, work hard, do the work you need to do, but be good to people. And yeah, and we, we overcomplicate things sometimes, you know, but it, it, it is that simple. Uh, you know, but I also think, although it's that simple, what you're saying is true is that as you take on more responsibility, the stakes of those decisions become higher. The payoff, both in the short term or long term, becomes higher. And therefore, the less defined you, your values or integrity might be, the, the more temptation there can be there to do those things that, yeah. um, you know, that, that whittle away at your own integrity. And, you know, yep. I, I remember a time where, you know, I think there's also stress and pressure that comes into oh, it. I, I remember well, a time where I was under a lot of stress as an executive leader and fortunately had built the track record, but I had one of my direct reports come to me and say, David, you're not leading like David anymore. What's going on? Mm. You know? And so I think, you know, as we're able to open ourselves to those conversations and create that kind of, there also creates some safeguards because we're going to have yeah. those trials. Yes. Well, you know, David, I would like to commend you on whatever you did as a leader that created the safe space for somebody to tell you that because a lot of leaders lock the door on really helpful advice because they're not super open to that kind of feedback, you know, and Marshall Goldsmith calls it feed forward. You know, I just think that that is one of the things as people take new levels in leadership, I just think that keeping that door open to what's not working and what you could do better, because as the leader, like nobody wants to upset. It's what I call the charisma complex. Nobody wants to upset you because you're the leader and they think you're cool and they're following you and, you know, and they don't want to make you unhappy by telling you something bad. So as a leader, I, I think the, the, the antidote to the charisma complex is what I call insightful 
vulnerability as a leader. If you practice insightful vulnerability and you say, hey, I was thinking about this and I realized I've been doing this and it doesn't work. And I know that that's impacted you. And I want to say, I'm sorry. And I want to know what I could do to make up for that. And here's what I'm going to do instead, right? Like not just this isn't working, you know, vulnerability, like, oh, poor me. No, vulnerability plus the insight. Because now you're setting, you're giving people something to mirror, which they're going to do that says it's okay to talk about failure. It's okay to bring a vulnerability and bring something of a solution, bring some insight along with it. And that opens the door for people to, to talk to you about what's working, sure, but also what's not working, which is what you need to hear even more, I think, as a leader, right? Oh, I love that, John. Insightful vulnerability. And, and I'm thinking about some of the uh, the tools that Karen and I share with uh, with leaders, like the do-it-yourself 360, you know, a very easy way to just ask questions. So you're asking, yeah. how do you create that atmosphere? And the first time you do this, if you haven't, it might, might not work as well. You got to prove that people can trust you with the feedback, but say, yeah. hey, what's one thing I'm doing as a leader that's really working for you? What works? And so start there and just one yeah. thing. And then what's one thing that I could do to be even more effective? And you're not asking them to criticize you. You're saying, hey, what's yeah. one thing I could do to be even more effective? And asking that in a, in a real spirit of vulnerability. And I really want to yes. hear over yes. time, people will answer that. And so you, you, you can model the insightful vulnerability that you just talked about and then pair that by asking some of those questions and you'll get the feedback you need to be as effective as you can. Yeah, totally agree. And you know, have you ever read the book I think, I think I, I don't know where I have it, but there's a, there's a great book called mindset. And of course, because I'm an executive coach, I didn't need to read that book because I know all about mindset, <laughs> but then I was like, smack, 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 John, how about a little beginner's mind? Because my friend had so highly recommended it. So I started reading first page or two. I was like, I know this. And then by the third page, I was like, oh my gosh, this is so fabulous. I'm glad I didn't listen to that guy, you know, and I'm reading it still. The author talks about fixed mindset versus growth mindset. And, you know, it's a super clear, easy distinction. Fixed mindset is you're born talented and any failure you have shows that you're not as talented as you thought you were, <laughs> you know, that's a horrible world to live in. Yeah. And uh, there's pieces of me that still go to that world, right? Like we all are, we all have a combination of this, of both mindsets, right? But, but growth mindset is, you know, you get better by practicing, you get better by experience. You know, if you fail this time, sit back and think about what you could do better and go do it again and again and again. And the truly deeply successful people all have growth mindset. And they also, by the way, are more fulfilled by their successes. You know, John McEnroe is very famously a fixed mindset guy, at least in his days as a tennis star. That's why he would get so mad and throw the racket and yell at the ref, right? Even though he was winning, he was not having fun. Yeah. And as a leader, hearing that painful feedback sometimes, it's something I resist. I don't want to hear that. <laughs> oh, you know, but I do. I really actually do because I'm committed to that fixed, not to the fixed mindset. I'm committed to the growth mindset. And the only way that I'm going to be able to grow and do things even better is if I'm hearing also what's not working and it's not a dig at me. It's just, here's something you could do better, right? Okay. I'll growth mindset that and get better. Absolutely. 
We are talking with John Bates. John, you are a leadership communications expert. And I want to pause here and just say that you were recommended to the show by one of our listeners uh, and friend of Let's Grow Leaders, Shelly Anderson. And I want to invite, if you're listening today and you're thinking about uh, a leader, an author, somebody that you know that you think would have some wisdom to share, we would love to feature them on Let's Grow Leaders. So just like Shelly did, uh, you can... Uh, Hit that big red button at leadershipwithoutlosingyoursoul.com. Leave us a message and tell us who we should be talking to next. All right. So, John, leadership communication expert, I got to ask, how do you get into the passion? I mean, you're not just, okay, leadership communication, whatever. You have passion. It, it bleeds out of you for this <laughs> subject. And you wrote a book and you help people around the world be amazing TED speakers. How'd you get into this? What, what? motivated that passion? Honest truth. I just failed at everything else I did, I think is how I got into this. I was always the guy with the soft skills and I was always surrounded by people with the hard skills. I always worked as a, as in the dot-com arena and I was always either a founder, a co-founder or a super early employee at all at these dot-com companies. And all the hard skills people called what I did fluffy. Cause I was the soft skills guy, you know? And so I would go around with this little chip on my shoulder, feeling like I wasn't as valuable as they were. Cause they got paid more. They were better educated, called what I did fluffy, but I was secretly resentful. Right. And then in 2009, I went to the Ted conference for the first time and was totally floored. And I remember coming back after watching those people give those talks. And first of all, I was always the evangelist for my companies. I would always end up with that title because that's what I did. And so I'd basically been a public speaker my whole life, but I realized I had never done that. And I got really excited. So when I came home, I got really involved in the TED and TEDx community. And my friends were running TEDx Santa Monica, one of the first ever TEDx events. We had this guy who had all the hard skills in the world. He had the most exciting topic for me of the day. He was the one I was looking forward to when he got on stage and started to talk. Everybody in the room checked out because we all thought, we were going to throw up because he was so nervous and it was just awkward. Oh no. And I remember being really sad at first because I'd just seen that so often people who were so highly educated, had so much to offer were such lovely people who just couldn't close the gap between their mouth and someone else's ears. So I was really sad. And then the evil part of me popped out. And I remember sitting there quietly to myself going, ha, 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 neener, 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 hard skills guy is blowing it, you know? And as I was indulging the, the part of myself I'm less proud of, my buddy walked over, Michael Weiss, and he leaned down and he completely changed my life. He said, dude, we got to do something to help people like this. And it was like the lights went on for the first time ever. And I just realized that if I just got over myself for five minutes, I could totally make a difference for someone like that. If I stopped honoring the chip on my shoulder and I started on the people that were just right in front of me. So I went home and I started working on what I now get to share all over the world. And I pinch myself when you read my client list, I'm like, really pinch, pinch. Um, but it's because of that moment, because what I did differently that I wouldn't have done otherwise is I realized if I really wanted to get through to someone like that guy, 
I would need to base everything I did in human evolutionary biology and human neurophysiology so I could show people not only what works when it comes to communicating with human beings and influencing them and leading them and getting them to take action, but also why it works based in science. And that fundamentally completely, totally changed my life. You know, just because I know where people are uh, in general in your audience. Up until that point, I was basically 50 grand in debt my whole life, had millions of dollars of totally useless stock that would never get liquid. And right around that time, everything else that I was doing had dried up too. So not even jobs that didn't pay enough with useless stock, right? And I was terrified for a while. And the reason I stepped into this fully is because I just didn't know what else to do. And people are always like, yeah, burn the boats, you know, that way you can't go home. You know? Well, I certainly didn't have the courage to light those things, but when they caught on fire anyway, at least I didn't try and put them out and I just stepped into this. That moment and that realization just changed everything. About two or three years ago, this shows what a soft skills guy I am. I was sitting here thinking about how this always works. It just always works. I'd done a huge event. It was fabulous. And the people were blown away that their, you know, engineer types could do such amazing talks. Nobody believed that that would go like that. And it, it went better than they ever thought. And I was like, God, this always works, man. And then I was like, duh, it's based in science. <laughs> that's why it always works. That's why we like science, you know? So that's, that's the story of, of how I got here. And I think that I essentially spent the vast majority of my life in the woods, just failing and failing and failing and failing and failing. Like I never had a successful exit. I raised several hundred million dollars, all of it gone, never had a successful exit. So all that time in the woods, I think, and all that massive amount of failure gave me an extraordinary high level of compassion and empathy, you know, and I don't think I could do what I do now if it weren't for that. And it wasn't fun at the time. And I, you know, I didn't like just sucking and sucking and sucking and failing, but <laughs> in the end, it gave me a gift. It did. It did. And it gave you that empathy and compassion that you're talking about. And those experiences that serve you in the, the, you know, as much as you might've had that chip and been resentful of some of those folks uh, that were treating you the way they were, you also were learning about them and started to recognize their needs. I'm excited to learn a little bit more and to share with our listeners some of your suggestions on leadership communication. You know, I've read your book. Uh, mm. There's it's, it's uh, for those of you who are interested, whether you want to do a TED, TEDx talk or just be a more effective communicator. If you can use and capture some of these principles, I guarantee that it will make you a more effective, more influential human being, both at work as a leader for your team. Uh, if you're doing outward facing things, wherever in your life you're communicating, these are going to be useful tips and tools for you. So John, let's start with for you, as you think about leaders communicating and, and particularly let's hone in on story a little bit. Great use of story. Like, what are some of the suggestions you have for how leaders can use story effectively? Well, the first thing is that I think so often, especially in the circles I often travel in, people hear storytelling and what shows up in their mind is like, once upon a time, there were three little pigs and they all lived at, right? And like, 
that's not what we mean, people. <laughs> you know, what we mean is that all throughout human history, the vast majority of our deep history as a species, the way that anything important came to us was not through the printing press. That's fairly recent. Google's even more recent. Gmail just happened, you know? Everything came to us in the form of a story. Anything complicated and important had to be in the form of a story because people just can't remember big long lists of stuff. So the only way that we would remember things is if they came in the form of a story. And I put songs in the Venn diagram circle of stories, right? So some of them were even sung stories, but everything was in the form of a story so we could even remember it, which means our brains have come to more highly value story than anything else on earth. So that's why they have to teach us over and over again, don't fall for anecdotal evidence. Don't think a story proves something unless you see the other data. Okay, well, that's true. Don't fall for anecdotal evidence. But the flip side, if you don't use stories when you've got good data, you know, Les Brown says, never tell a story without a point. Very good. And never make a point without a story. That's going to make you vastly more successful right there as a leader. If you think every time that you want to make a point with your team or with a colleague or whoever, think of a story that illustrates that point. Mass effectiveness increase right there because it's the most valuable tool that you have. You know, it's, it's the most valuable tool for communicating with human beings, period. So as we're thinking about these stories, you said, well, I want to avoid the once upon a time, there were three little pigs yeah. type of like, you know, kind of artificial constructed <laughs> right? You know, and it feels like what's well, inauthentic, whatever. But so how do I do that? How, great, great question. So there, there are a few things. One thing that I've started to, to offer people who kind of have that reaction is okay, let's not call it storytelling anymore. How about you just think of your most relevant experiences and share those? That's called storytelling. But, you know, <laughs> we don't have to call it that. All those experiences that you've had, they're valuable, you know? Share them with us and tell us what you learned out of them. Tell us the point uh, of that story and what you took away. And I just was talking a little while ago with the woman who ran HR at Intuit forever. So somebody who knows a lot about personal growth and development and leadership for a very large corporation, she said something so simple and so brilliant. She said, John, people want to know their leaders. They get to know you through your stories through your experiences and what you learned from those experiences, a great way for you to get your values across and convey your principles to your team and let people know what they can expect of you and who you actually are, you know? So I've been telling people, I think one of your greatest leadership tools is go into your phone or go into your computer or whatever you use the most, Evernote, your notes on your phone, Google Docs, create a document called Story Catcher. And then once every week or two, check in with that thing. And you don't have to long form journal, just write two or three sentences about a few things that happened that week that are leadership lessons. What, you know, the, the time I talked to David and we talked about, uh, you know, this thing, you'll remember the whole thing. If you just give yourself a little 
prod to remember. And that story catcher document in six months, a year, five years, 10 years, that'll be your most valuable leadership tool ever. I am a, I would second, third and fourth that recommendation. That's something, John, that I have done in my life is over. That's the, so beautiful. Uh, and, and as a communicator and, and, and professional speaker at some, you know, trainer and all of that, like you do, you need those sort of, where, where did I learn that? Yeah. Where, where did I first encounter that? And what was the experience? And then all of those, and some of them you're going to use and some of you don't, it doesn't matter. Right. right? But no. they're there and you've got them and then you can start figuring out what are the what are the experiences I want to share that are going to be yeah. most valuable? Let's hone in on that a little bit. As as you know, you're listening. Uh, listener is listening and saying, "Okay, yeah, I get that. I need to share experiences, and that's how people are going to know me." What are the types of things I should be looking for? I should be so, sharing. So the next thing that people say, in my experience, is, "Yeah, but you know, John, you train the astronauts. You know, like you're a surfer. You have all these interesting stories. I don't have anything interesting like that." <laughs> okay, well, no, that's just your way of kind of trying to sneak out the back door on this whole thing because it's a little bit revealing and it could be vulnerable and scary. Here's here's something that I think is fundamentally true. If you're over like ten years old and you still remember something that happened a while ago, then it was meaningful to you. And here's the thing. If it was meaningful to you, it will be meaningful to me too, because I'm a human being as well. Everything that you even still remember happening you still remember it because it mattered to you somehow. Now, if you start to think about, whoa, what were some of those moments when I was really impressed with someone's leadership or when I learned a really difficult lesson or when I had a big insight, you know, if you up the bar even a little bit, now you're getting to a realm where everything that you can think of, believe it or not, is going to be something that will impact other people because if it touched, moved or inspired you, it will do that for me as well because I'm a human being too. I love that. I never heard that said that way before that. If you remember it, you remember it for a reason and it's got some value. <laughs> it has some value to you and it's going to have some value to, to others. Part of that, I imagine, and I'm fake imagining it. I, I know this because I've experienced the flip side yep. is that you need to practice how you actually share these things. There's a way yep. to share it that works in a way that doesn't. I remember uh, we share this sometimes when we're talking about leadership communication, <laughs> a CEO that we were working with who told a story that rambled on for about two hours. And at the end of it, none of us in the room had an idea of what he was trying to say. Right. So that might be an example on the extreme of how not to do it, but yeah. what suggestions do you have in terms of how we do it effectively? Two big points for that, that exact example, because it's so generalizable. Number one that advice that I just shared from Les Brown, never tell a story without a point. And by the way, smart people often think they don't need to tell us what the point of their stories are because they think it's so obvious. 
but we're not in the mode of trying to figure out the point. We're in the listening mode. That's a very honorific mode for us to be in for you. So when you tell us the story, also tell us the point so that we can be sure we get the point you meant us to get. And so you can be sure we get the point you meant us to get. Otherwise we might get some completely other point, right? So never tell a story without a point and never make a point without a story. So that's one going into that story why are you telling it to us? What's the point going to be? Like, no, you know, keep the end in mind, right? So that's number one. Number two, you don't have to tell the whole story, please. You know, that's the number one mistake that people make with storytelling, period. And, you know, I like to say, imagine going into one of those, I don't know, dollar general stores, you know, where there's just all that stuff on the shelves and they're just packed and there's all that. Okay. That's everything, you know, and here's the thing. I don't want to know all that. I don't want to know all that. You know, all that. I don't want to know all that. I just want you to show me where are the treats. Oh, John, I know you love those things that we got when we were in Slovakia. I don't know how they get them here, but like the, those awesome treats, they're right there on that shelf over there by the whatever. You just go down the second aisle, turn right, go down a few steps, and they're right there near the floor. I don't know how they get them. They're cheap. They're fresh. They're awesome. That's your, there's your treats, right? You just curated that whole thing for me and pointed me the treats. So it's not, it's funny, but it's not a joke. When you're thinking about your story, just give us the treats. Think about what we, what are the parts that we need to hear to get the point of the story and anything else doesn't matter. You, you know, here's your poetic license. I'm giving it to you right now. We'll store it in the cloud. You've got it for life. Use that poetic license and curate the most important thing up to the top. And, and David, what, where, what city are you in right now? Uh, in Laurel, Maryland at the moment. That's so funny. Cause the other, like about two years ago, my wife and I had dinner really near your neighborhood and we had the most amazing, amazing dinner. And I think it was Tuesday. No, was it Wednesday? Could have been, maybe it was, it might've been a weekend. Was it two? No, I don't care. I don't care what night it was, John. Just tell, tell me about the dinner. About the dinner. Right? What did you have for dinner? Where did you have dinner? What, you know, why was it the most amazing dinner, right? It's near my neighborhood. And by the way, I made that up, but I don't you imagine. Still had, you, you still had me intrigued. I was like, wow, well, when COVID's over, where can I go? Yeah, right. And it doesn't matter what night, unless it really matters what night, you know, if it's taco Tuesdays, then then, then it matters. matters. But otherwise, it, you know, tell us about the dinner. And I think people get caught in the weeds that way, telling us all the things, trying to just get all the details in and like, we really don't need that. That's the practice I think that's involved in telling stories strategically. There's, you know, there's sitting around a table with your friends and, and just kind of shooting the breeze. And, you know, so then we may have some of the extraneous, oh, was it then? Was it then? But as yeah. a leader, when you're trying to communicate for influence and for, you know, the strategic purpose of teaching your team something or helping them understand why you're taking a particular route that you're taking, whatever that might be, there's some work that goes into this. It's not just wake up and, oh, well, yeah. No, yeah. You want to hear something horrible? This sure. is just such bad news on some level. <laughs> Steve Jobs, the natural communicator, 
right? He's so good. People called him the natural communicator. Everybody wanted to be like Steve, right? Well, after they wrote the talk and got it all perfect, which took a long time and a lot of effort, Steve Jobs would practice that talk for an hour for every minute he was going to be on stage. That's why he was the natural communicator. And I think that we call people naturally talented because we just don't want to be on the hook for practicing as hard as they did. Don't see the work that goes into it. Yeah. Mm. Yep. That mistake of trying to wing it when you're trying to uh, dude, strategically. That was me my whole life. And my, I had a problem that I bet some of your listeners have, and it's a really big problem. And the reason it's such a big problem is because it's just so corrosive and so non-obvious at first. My biggest problem was that I was almost always the best speaker at the conference, at least in the top three, every time, always. And I would just wing it. The problem with that though, I was never, ever going to get anywhere near as good as I could be by being the best speaker at the conference because the bar was super low. But you don't you know? realize that when, you know, so if you do find yourself in that situation and you're like, well, gosh, I'm one of the best speakers I know. Well, who do you know? Yeah, right. <laughs> what kind of, what kind of pond? And I'm, I'm talking to myself there, John, because I had such a similar experience when I, I was one of the best speakers I knew in, yeah. in my corporate and career life. And then when I got out of that pond and started talking to people who have spent their life learning how to communicate as effectively as possible, holy cow, that took a, there was a, a, a the ego had to take a couple steps down and I had a lot to learn, still learning. Like me, when I went to Ted, you know, like I was floored. But then what I found out is that most of those speakers, most of those unbelievably fabulous TED Talks, they practiced for like a year. One of the, let's get to that. One of the tips in your book that I thought made all the sense in the world and is probably one of the most challenging. I don't know if this is true. You have worked with uh, dozens, if not hundreds of, of TED speakers. And so you, you can validate this for me or not, but the tip, please take this tip. If you've got eight weeks or six months before you know you're delivering a talk or speech, your tip was write it in the first two weeks and then spend Boom. the rest of the time practicing. And that's right. How much sense does that make? But how often do people actually do it? Oh, dude, I was the guy that would like string together. I'd like rearrange last time's PowerPoint deck a little bit the night before and go give it. And, you know, sometimes I was really good and it was awesome. And then sometimes it was a little bit of a whiff, you know? And what I realized at a certain point is that that winging it thing, I was getting uneven results. If I was going to be honest with myself, still the best speaker at the conference, but it was an uneven result. It wasn't that, that good. And at some point it dawned on me that uneven results were not going to get me where I wanted to go. Yeah. And that's when I just flipped the script. And it's actually it, the hardest part is the mental jujitsu, right? Because you're going to stay up late one night, like figuring out the talk. Why don't you just do that in the first week or two? 
so that it's done. And then you can live with it over two and a half months. Take two weeks. If you got three months, take the first two weeks, dial that puppy out, give yourself a fake deadline and have it done. And then give it once a day for the next two and a half months and just let it iterate itself and practice it out loud. Doesn't count if it's not out loud. It has to be out loud. Practice it once a day out loud for the next two and a half months. Then when you get up on stage, here's what's going to happen for you. If you do this, you will be the expert in your talk. You will be so good at it and you'll be able to be present with people and look at people and smile and people will wonder what's going on with you. How is he so fabulous? And then you come across when you do that, like an expert in your, in your talk, because you are an expert in your talk, but people generalize that. It's not logical. It's biological. They generalize that to just think you're an expert in everything. And, and wanna, it's an unbelievable halo effect. I want to pull out something that, that you're, you're saying without saying it there is that that expertise, why do people think you're an expert? Because you're calm, you're relaxed. You're so competent in what you're competent about. Yeah. That that calmness and your your ability to just be present with people that communicates. Oh, you really know this. You're not having to think about it. You're not nervous about it. You just now whether or not any of that's true. If you're coming across that way, that's well, how I mean, you perceive it. And you can do that with your talk. Like this is a 100% achievable thing because it's your talk. Yeah. All you need to be is an expert in this talk. Exactly. That's all. And then people just go, well, they really know what they're talking about. And, you know, <laughs> we're off to the races. All right. So great tips. So many great practical suggestions so far. We've got time for one more. And I want to try to combine these, I think. Okay. Because we're having this conversation over Zoom. And we've talked about stages and things, uh, and those are going to come back at some point for some folks and others may never see that again in there. I mean, every company is doing things differently. So the first half of my question is tips regarding remote communication, communicating over the kind of platform that we're on now, because we're all having to do it, so many of us. And then the second half of the question is, you know, you, and you were getting there a little bit about the neurobiology that's involved in communication. I imagine you have got some suggestions for us about how to capture the neurobiological components of communication and how to do that effectively over these digital platforms that we're using. Yeah. Okay. So in the interest of time, I will unpack one that's exceedingly important and fairly straightforward. And, and I'll give a little bit of context. Like we, when we're in person, we don't think about it very much, but we're smelling each other's pheromones, you know, that's happening. And it's on a completely unconscious level, totally unconscious, but it's happening. And we're seeing each other's facial micro gestures and we're seeing each other's totally unconscious body language, not like, oh, his arms are folded. That's closed. Oh, his arms are open. That's, oh, no, we're seeing these much more subtle things that we never will notice consciously, but we're sending and receiving them all the time. All that stuff's gone in zoom. I can sort of see your facial micro gestures, but you know, I mean, it's still much, much harder and can't smell your pheromones, can't see the body language. So to think about the fact that that's all missing and using the two things we have, the visual and the audio, 
how can I bring some of that back? So two big things. One is get a good microphone. The sound matters much more than the video. If the video is a little grainy or whatever, no big deal. But if the sound's raspy and yucky, the better, the sweeter that sound, the more awesome the experience is for whoever's talking to you. And then this is pretty tough, but it's worth practicing. Look into the camera lens because I've talked to a lot of top leaders who still are doing this thing. Oh, John, great to see you. Yeah. How are you? Well, what's up? You know, and they're looking off to the side monitor where they've got my video and I'm because the camera is now pointed at the side of their face. It seems to me unconsciously neurobiologically, not logically. I know what he's doing logically, but unconsciously I'm like, that guy's not paying attention to me. That person isn't listening. They're, they're looking someplace else. And so I've been working really hard on this and I've been coaching people on this and it has been making an outsized difference. Look into that camera lens and give people the experience when you're the one on the hook, you know, when it matters to you, how this goes, look into that camera and talk to people, look into the camera when they're talking to you, look into the camera. Now I drag my video, like I've got you, David, right up under my camera so I can glance down at you once in a while just to see, is he smiling? Yes, he's smiling. He seems pretty happy. Hopefully I'm doing okay here, you know, and then glance back up at the lens. And we do that when we're talking, even in person, we'll look at each other in the eyes. Then we'll look down at each other's mouth for a minute, the jawline, whatever, look back up eyes. So that actually feels pretty natural to people. But now everybody on that call that's, that's with you has the feeling as they look at your video on the screen that you're looking them right in the eye because you're looking into the camera lens. And that has been incredibly powerful. I Seems call it, sort of silly, but it's so powerful. I call it look into the green dot because the original, it's no longer the case, but the first computer camera I had had a little green light that lit up right by yeah. the, the aperture. Yep. Yep. And so, you know, and, and I will tell you, I mean, I, it takes work. That's it does. practice. If you are not accustomed yeah. to this, I hope you're listening to John and I definitely want to cement everything he's saying about this because it takes work. It's not easy. It's unnatural yeah. to look yep. into that camera lens, but if you do it enough and train yourself to, to do it because you know, it's effective, it will pay dividends for you and in, in the influence that you're having with your team, the connection yeah. with, with other human beings. And, and that's what we're here for. And you know, David, I've got one of those really bright dots on my camera and it was actually so bright that I took a sticky note, cut a corner off and stuck it over that light to dim it down. So do what you have to do to make it so that you can look in that camera. And, and I, I try really hard not to see the dot, not to see the lens. You know, I try to see this guy named David who's committed to people who loves to share great leadership secrets so that people can become excellent leaders without losing their soul, you know, and think about the people that you talk to and influence and where they are in their careers. That's what's, that's, what's going on in my mind. As I look at that little black lens, I'm not thinking about the lens. Exactly. It's the person behind it. Yeah. So John, we have only scratched the surface. I so appreciate all of the wisdom and the, some of the practical suggestions that you shared with us. 
Uh, where can people find more? Where can they find you? Where can they find your books? Where, where do we connect with you? Well, the itty bitty guide to being Ted Worthy's on Amazon and uh, the Kindle version is only 99 cents. The publisher was like, don't you want to bring it up? I'm now, let's just get it out there. It's a good reference, you know? So Probably one uh, of the best 99 cents you're going to spend. I'm just saying. You're right on. I'm glad to hear that. And uh, my website is executivespeakingsuccess.com. And you can reach, reach out to me there. At my website, I do something that I think is, uh, people really tend to appreciate it. It's called, I do a mini training every Sunday. Instead of a newsletter, I do a mini training. And you can, when you come to my website, you'll get one of those annoying pop-ups that you can easily dismiss. But if you want to sign up for that, the mini training is cool. And then uh, on YouTube, I've got a number of not only my videos, but I also have a curation of some of the absolute best TED Talks ever. Uh, so that's youtube.com forward slash exec speaking. And then on Facebook, uh, which is a great place to connect with me too, um, it's forward slash executive speaking success. Fantastic. And if you are driving or on the treadmill or something, we will put all of those links uh, and more for the social media and uh, connection to the book and everything in the show notes. So you can find that at leadershipwithoutlosingyoursoul.com. John Bates, leadership communication expert. I, I got to think I got to use the word guru with all <laughs> of uh, experience and the people that you're working with. John, thank you so much for being here with us. I want to give you a, a chance to say one more, one last leadership communication secret tip strategy that you would share with our listeners. Okay, this is a tough love one. First of all, you're a leader. Doesn't matter where you are in the hierarchy, doesn't matter what you think, people are following you. And I want to ask, are you clear about how powerful your leadership is? And are you leading people in the direction you wanna take them? And here's something to chew on. Like I said, a little tough love. You are an Olympic style champion at winning the games you're playing. And if it doesn't feel like that to you, I would offer the reason for that is because it's very probable that you are not playing the game you say you're playing. The way that you can find out the game you're actually playing is to just look at the game you're winning. Now, if you're winning the game you don't wanna be winning, at least you know now. And I promise you, you're an Olympic style champion at winning the game you're playing. So if you're winning a game you don't want to be playing, just play the game you want to win and you'll win that one pretty soon. Wow. I've never heard that before. You are an Olympic champion at winning the game that you are playing. It's just for a long time, I was lying to people about what game I was playing, <laughs> you know, and myself included. And then they've got the misalignment. Wow, we've come full circle. You've taken us all the way back where we started, but in a, a significantly deeper way. That is powerful. Something to think about as you are getting on with your leadership. Well, examine the game you're playing. Make sure it's the game you want to be playing. Yes. And you're on your way to being the leader you'd want your boss to be. John, thank you for being with us. You're super welcome, David. You're super welcome. It's a pleasure. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.